Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk, Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we are preaching. So what is astonishing Wait, first you? of all, can I just start with the lie you just told before we hit record? <laughs> I mean, we don't know it's a lie. <laughs> it, is, it is a lie. You said to me... I think I'm going to say very little on this podcast. I, really, I have very little to say. I That's, really have very little to I say. I have very little to say. I mean, it's rare, so we should just like like enjoy it while it lasts. I know you're skeptical. That's fine. Highly. Mm-hmm. But we'll, we'll see. We'll see. What's astonishing you? Well, I want to talk about Sunday worship at Dorita Church. Um, I share with you on the walk or the run that um, Sunday morning I'm getting ready uh, to leave, and uh, I always leave before Matthew and Han, uh, just to get to church early and uh, get some things uh, done and settled in and ready for worship. And so I'm literally about 10 minutes away from leaving the house, and my wife comes to the bathroom, and she said, God wants me to speak to the church today. And I must have given her a look that said, really? <laughs> Because she repeated it and said, I'm not kidding. I'm serious. God told me this. And I said, well, okay. Um, I had already planned to ask uh, Diane to uh, give a testimony. I talked about her story last uh, week. Her brother uh, Mm -hmm. recovered from a heart situation, was healed, and was sent home when we thought that he was going to have to have a heart pump. Uh, placed in his body, and uh, so we were rejoicing over that and asked her to share that with the congregation, and so we already had that testimony planned, and so we we started worship, and, you know, sometimes you just have a sense when worship starts that it's going to be a different kind of morning. You just sense that God is up to something, and uh, we were singing our opening praise songs, and our worship leader, Miriam, at the end of the second praise song, starts talking about worship and intimacy with God and worship and inviting the congregation into greater intimacy. And she was doing it in a way that really was inviting and pe- bringing people into a deeper experience. It wasn't you know, finger wagging or criticism. It was beautiful and wonderful and spirit led. And I was thinking, okay, God, you are really up to something today. And so after the praise time, uh, we have a, a member of the congregation come and pray. And I stood up to do the next thing. And I had a sense that that wasn't what the Lord wanted. And I just kind of stood there. It was awkward. It was awkward because I was trying to discern what was next. And I said finally to the congregation, hey, I know we have a printed order of service, but I think the Lord wants us to scrap it today. I'm supposed to preach on Psalm 126, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to take up the offering, and then we'll see what God wants us to do after that. So after the offering, um, I read Psalm 126. After reading Psalm 126, the, you know, 2,500 word sermon that I had written <laughs> was set aside. I focused on one verse of that text um, that the psalmist prays, restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev, right? So uh, the psalmist is going through a hard time and um, the Negev is a, a, a desert part of southern Israel once a year, it rains, turns that part of the desert into a garden. And so the psalmist is praying, you know, what you what you do annually in the Negev, would you do that in my life and in my situation? And, and that's, a, that's a beautiful and powerful prayer. And so I just, I spoke on that for about th- three minutes and uh, said, you know, we have two testimonies this morning that I think might help us to enter into this experience that the psalmist is talking about. So first, Diane uh, spoke, and we celebrated the healing of her brother, and um, that was wonderful and beautiful, and she did a wonderful job, and this is a person who has never stood in front of Dorita Church to speak, so that was wonderful. And then the second person was my wife, Han, 
who also has never stood before the congregation. And she shared something that really blew the congregation away. Um, she shared that she had been on antidepressants for a number of years and that she'd been struggling with um, anxiety um, and um, that she felt, you know, the Lord months ago telling her it was time to come off that medication. And so she's been doing that and it's been, it's been challenging. And so she just shared those challenges and, um, in a way that was really, um, surprising to me. Uh, she was very vulnerable and, um, um, yeah, she shared a lot, but it was so powerful and so meaningful and uh, then she, she just prayed. She, she said, she ended by saying, God told me to do this because there are other people in the room who are struggling with something similar. And so God wants me to pray for you today. And so she prayed this wonderful prayer. If my wife can do anything, she can pray. I mean, she is a prayer. Mm -hmm. And so she prayed for the congregation and it was, it was amazing. And, um, but what was really astonishing to me was that so many people went up to her after worship to say, mm -hmm. you're right, I've had the same challenges. And, you know, I was thinking, you know, I have, I've pastored many of these people for eight years, and I, mm -hmm. I never knew that about their lives. And my wife gets up and speaks for 10 minutes, and it touches a place that um you know she just reached a need that i didn't even know was there mm -hmm. but um you know we we sang a song again we sang another song i gave an invitation said the benediction and people left with a kind of awe a kind of it was a bit it was a bit messy right it was a bit mm -hmm. um it felt a little out of order but it felt holy also. It felt like, oh, we have been in the presence of God. God did something here today that we could not put on the calendar. We could not, we couldn't make this happen. Um, and so we, we just received it as a gift, a, a grace gift. Yeah, I mean, I think we were talking about this earlier and I was saying, you know, my immediate reactions um, or just real, um, I mean, just awe and noticing just your maturity and faithfulness as a servant leader of the congregation and being able to say, like, I understand that I'm not the only person through whom God speaks when it comes to um, God's will for this congregation. And so, I mean, because what you didn't say just now, but we had said is that you had planned you had reached out to Diane to say, can I tell the story in my sermon? And her understanding was that you were inviting her to give the testimony. And then when she said, yes, I'll do that, your sense is, I mean, just because as a preacher, I mean, what is, what is true about the preaching moment is that you as a pastor have a lot of control. And so you think about, it's not just that I want this story told, but I want it told in a particular way Correct. so that I can build upon it and make connections. And then just being able to say like, well, but the story doesn't belong to me. It belongs to her. And if she's willing to tell it like that requires you as a leader to let go, to let go of control and expectations and just trust that, no, what's healthier for this congregation is when people share their stories. And so, um, and I also, and, and the same with, with Han, I think we were saying this earlier that, you know, there comes a point in your um, growth or, you know, life stage as a pastor where you really do have to work hard to overcome some of our training. And we talk a lot about like we were trained largely in seminaries, seminaries that were staffed by people who work for the academy and not by local churches. And so we've learned a lot of tasks like how to do particular things like this is how you teach a bible study and this is how you read the bible and this is how you preach a sermon and this is how you give pastoral care and and maybe if you're lucky and you're not a mainliner you'll learn like this is how you lead a community <laughs> but um we didn't but you, but they do <laughs> some places um 
but no, for real, lest anyone think I'm joking, I don't know of a single mainline seminary that requires their pastors to learn about leadership, which just tells you so much. Anyway, anyway, but we, the model we're given is sort of like, okay, well, you're the trained person. You're the you're, professional. You're the expert. So you do, like you priest, right? I mean, it's ironic as reformed people that we really are trained as priests, that we take the raw materials that people offer and then we make the sacrifice of praise. And, you know, and so really doing the work of, of both incorporating all of the very valuable skills and wisdom and practices that we were given, incorporating them deeply and then moving beyond them and saying like, hey, wait a minute, the church actually doesn't exist to worship God. The church does not exist to worship God. Worship forms the people of God into the body of Christ. And worship is not the end. Worship is the means to the end of making and forming disciples. And so in that moment, like the greater, the greater thing is for people in the congregation to be able to stand up and say, this is what the Lord has done in my life. And I'm going to be vulnerable and share it with all of you because you're my brothers and sisters. And the way the Lord works in my life is also the way the Lord works in your life. And we need to ponder these things together. And I also just think it's worth noting that, you know, when Han stands up in front of the congregation, I mean, she is your wife, but just knowing Han, like she's not standing up there as your wife. Like she's standing up there saying, correct. I am a follower of Jesus Christ and I am a member of this community. And the Lord told me to bring this gift into the church where the Lord has me. And, and I just think that's so just important to just model like, Hey, if we really are brothers and sisters in Christ, then, you know, we're not doing this sort of carefully controlled and choreographed dance together on a Sunday morning and then dispersing. We're actually sharing our lives. Like the Holy spirit is binding our lives together and we're walking in community and worship is an expression of that, but it's not, you know, it, it's, it's not the, the boundaries of that. So, and I just think a lot of us, especially if we're in mainline churches, it's just so hard to unlearn everything we learned about worship needing to be a certain way or else, you know, and the implicit thing is like, well, it has to be this way or else it offends God, but it doesn't offend God. It offends us. Yes. Like, <laughs> well, what's also astonishing to me is to be in a Presbyterian church, which is usually fairly, you know, ordered and structured when it comes to worship. Right. Like we and joke, I, like decently know. in an order and it's a joke, but it's not a joke. Like we mean it. Like Absolutely. this is a cultural phrase that people are always laugh like, ha ha ha. We do things decently in an order. But that joke is true. Like, that is how we shut things down. And I was going to say, and often we, we are so structured that we just squeeze the life out of what is meant to be life-giving for us. And um, I was astonished that not a single person had any kind of criticism about setting aside the printed order of service or just saying, hey, we're, we're going we're gonna to do things in a really different way today. And I've been in other congregations where if you changed something just a little bit, you received phone calls and emails. And so, you know, God bless the people of right. the Rider Church. Well, I mean, I think that it's also just the season that we're in, you know, being in a post-Christendom world after the great upheaval of the pandemic. I mean, I just think, without realizing it, a lot of times we use our worship, we use our structure, our order, we use them to kind of shield ourselves from the revelations and demands that the Holy Spirit has for us. And we sort of say like, well, that can't be God because it there's no room for it in the order of service or there's no precedent for it or there's, you know. And so, I mean, like anything, I'm not anti order. Um, that I think it's important that 
their structure and order because it gives accountability and accessibility to people. So I think it's not bad, but it, like any other good thing, can be used like an idol and, and a God replacement. And I think, though, the truth is, um, in general, you know, there's no cultural impetus to go to be a part of a worshiping community anymore. So most people who are part of worshiping communities really are on some level, even if not consciously, are, are, are being led or sincerely trying to have a relationship with God and encounter with the holy. And I think sometimes for us as the quote professionals, because we, you know, we just sort of forget that and instead of really recognizing that, like, you know, I think about this, I used to think about this a lot when I was doing youth ministry. Um, and, and I think it's true for adults, but we don't think about it. But, you know, when you're doing a youth group, you can't, you can't expect teenagers to walk in and raise their hand and say, can we please, I am on a spiritual journey. Can you please nourish me and nurture me in the spiritual journey? I want to have like, I mean, like they, young people, you know, when teenagers, that's just not socially safe for them. Like they need us to take them seriously even before they can articulate or feel safe enough, or maybe even an awareness of what's happening, right? Like we need to be the ones who know. Like I, my friend Chapin used to say, um, <laughs> as cool as we think we are, they do not want to be our friends. Like that's not why they're here. They're here because they're on a spiritual journey and we should know that and not make them say it. And so I think though the reality is we get so caught up in like, how great does our band sound or how interesting are our sermons or how clever was this or that worship, you know, art piece that we don't recognize that the reality is all of those things are fine, but people are here to have an encounter with the Holy and we need to know that. Um, and, and then be open to obviously God doesn't work for me. I work for God. And so one of my takeaways from Sunday was once again, I'm able to see that people come with a deep spiritual hunger. Right. And so often, you know, as a pastor, I try to continue to do what I've always done, thinking that that will satisfy the hunger. And sometimes it will. A lot of times it will not. Right. And when we, when we just, when we change things up, it is really amazing how that will touch a place, a scratch an itch that I didn't even see. Well, and I think, you know, especially for people like pastors like you and me and maybe other pastors who are serving churches that are institutionally in a place of, you know, um, reforming or like institutionally weak. Like if, if somebody just wanted perfect, predictable I'm using air quotes, excellent worship. They're not going to deride it. They're not going to the grove. Like we don't have, we can't deliver polish. And so when people come, they're already open to like, Lord, I, I, I think you might be in a place that doesn't have, you know, the latest and greatest of every single thing and doesn't, isn't necessarily you know, reserved for the elite and the, well, those who the culture perceives as elite. Like I, I believe God that you work at the margins and that you bring things back to life. Like, I mean, we just, we, and I was saying this, we were doing an interview this week that like the, the thing about um, transformation, like churches in transformation or desperately seeking new life as a community, like that can be embarrassing, but also that's what we're all doing, really. That's Absolutely. what we're all yes. really doing. And what we have when we serve a church that can't pretend anymore, it's, it's actually a real gift to say if there are other people who just don't want to pretend or can't pretend anymore, like we can name that. Like what is true for Derrida and is true for the Grove is like if God is not alive and at work and still interested in bringing holy dead or half dead things back to life if that's not real and true then we should all go to brunch and if it is true 
then we can gather in the space and go like, well, I don't have to do everything exactly perfectly all the time in order to pull off this miracle because I'm not the miracle worker. I am the miracle observer. Yeah, that's good. So what is astonishing you? Um, well, I'll just conflate my astonishing and thinking um, together. Um, so I, um, I, I have been just deeply troubled, <laughs> disturbed, um, just watching um, the war unfold in the Gaza Strip. Um, just not being able to look away, believing that it's really um, unconscionable to look away. Also, just feeling deeply grieved at, you know, not not at either side, but just at the powers and principalities of violence and enmity and fear and the way faith and just the way it's all just being diabolically and using that term deliberately. Um, just, you know, the enemy is good at his job. And I think, you know, and, and I, I'm not proud of this, but I think when, we are thinking about the war in Ukraine, and, and I think this is, um, again, this isn't a good thing. It's just a real thing. I think for many, especially Americans, like you look at that, at that war and just say like, well, Russia, this is a war of aggression, so the Ukrainians are the good guys and the Russians are the bad guys. <laughs> you know. And obviously, that's a diabolical view of a conflict between, you know, between siblings, between brothers. But there, there is this sort of, at least, um, appearance of moral clarity. And I think what is so challenging, I mean, what is so awful, I mean, it's all awful, but what is an extra level of just... Con- confusion and difficulty about bearing witness to what's happening in the Gaza Strip is you don't have the the um, sort of satisfying ability to just be like oh well those guys are the bad guys and these guys are the good guys and let's like watch the fight and pray for this side and against that side that and you know I am watching I mean I know this is a technical term and I know it's a loaded term but I don't know how to describe what you're seeing in the Gaza Strip right now. I don't know what it would mean to not use the word genocide to describe that. And again, you can't fall back into the appearance of the like binary, like the evil Germans and the innocent Jews or the evil Russians and the innocent Ukrainians because I understand not enough, but just more of the context of not just the context of the attack on October 7th, but the context of, you know, the founding of Israel and the occupation and the, and, and also, you know, the, that, that what happened on October 7th was was an evil terrorist attack like that is true and what is happening in response and I was listening to a report yesterday and an Israeli government official was saying look you know Hamas has a has a terrorist enclave underneath that hospital so you know they are the ones who are using human shields there's you know we we have to get rid of Hamas and the this it will we, we have to destroy them we have to eradicate them we have to end them and so you know innocent people are going to die and that is terrible but that's Hamas's fault not ours and that on the other side of this it's not only Israel that will be better without Hamas but it is 
the Palestinians who will be better without Hamas. And I just want to know, like, this is exactly the language that we used when we launched a war in Afghanistan and a war in Iraq. Um, so I, I just like, I see that through line. I, I obviously do understand that having a country led by a terrorist regime that wants that at least in its founding. And I think still says, you know, Israel doesn't have a right to exist. Like that is not neutral by, by any means like that, you know, I, 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 but also I understand that like it was almost as if there's this sense of like on the other side of this conflict, whatever that looks like, that the people of Palestine should sit should say thank you to Israel for delivering them from Hamas. And I, you know, just can so identify with Palestinian people, like doctors who are saying like, I'm supposed to evacuate, but how am I supposed to leave my patients here in this hospital to just die? But if I say, I mean, you know, it's just like, there's no, there's no, there's no option there. And, and if your child is, you know, if you have to go to the hospital to give birth and then your baby dies because there's no electricity, like to, to sort of say, well, I, this was a justified killing, so it's okay. I mean, like, or I appreciate, like, that's just not, I mean, your child is dead regardless of, I mean, it just, I don't know. Um, and it, and it's so difficult to even talk about because, to express any sympathy or compassion for Palestinian citizens, to express any um, call for moderation of the Israeli... I mean, first of all, people just are dealing with alternative facts. Like, some people are saying, hey, these are war crimes. Israel's saying it's, they are absolutely not war crimes. Like, I don't understand. Like, the UN is saying they are. Israel is saying the UN is wrong. Like, I obviously, I know that these are technical legal definitions. I don't have the ability to tell who is being truthful or who is not. But I, they both cannot be... I mean, one is there is one objective set of like either it is legal to bomb a hospital or it isn't. And I don't, I don't, I can't speak to what it is, but it can't be both. And I do think it's just really surreal for me because, you know, I, I spent all these years studying genocide with a revered Jewish teacher. when we talked about like saying what you're seeing, isn't what you're seeing is one of the key. I mean, it's just, and 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 there's the sense of if you if you say anything other than it's not my business or it's not my place or do what you have to do Israel that you're being not just that you're being anti-Semitic and that you then are are you know supporting Hamas and supporting terrorists and you know like setting the stage for a second Holocaust and it's just um it's just a terrible like to be a peacemaker in this situation to like I think just wrestling with like what does it mean to be a peacemaker and I think just what we've talked about a lot in sermons is this idea that Jesus says blessed are the peacemakers and then follows it up immediately with like blessed are you when you are hated and despised and persecuted and it's because if you're really going to be a peacemaker then it means you're on nobody's side because so much of what it feels like in our culture to have solidarity with me means you have to hate my enemies. And so if you don't hate my enemies, then, you know, if you're not, if you're not against them, you're against me in the zero sum game. And I guess that, and then the thing I'm thinking about and also astonishing about is I heard a, just the beginning of an article, and I'm probably going to preach about this at some point, that, that the, the church patriarchs in the Holy Land, so like the Eastern Orthodox leaders of the churches in the Holy Land are saying to everyone, look, Advent is around the corner and we have to mute our celebrations of Christmas this year, given the war that's in the Holy Land. And I just am so like, cap I mean, this sounds callow, but like I'm captivated by that idea theologically of what does it mean about actually how we celebrate Christmas if our instinct would be, well, it's inappropriate to celebrate Christmas in the context of a war, because 
the reality is that is exactly when we need to celebrate actual coming of Christ, actual, you know, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father, Mighty Counselor, Son of God, like that truth that we are, that is revealed to us that we are proclaiming and leaning into, it would seem like, I mean, obviously I don't want there to be a war anywhere ever, but it would seem like this would be exactly the time and place that we need to figure out what, what does it mean to, to celebrate the birth of Christ because it's exactly in a space where there are intractable wars where you just think like, I can just understand why grieve, but understand why Israelis and Palestinians are like, there's no way that we can ever live if the other still lives. And, and plenty of Palestinians and Israelis don't say that, right? But I'm just saying there are plenty of Israelis who I think I don't agree, but I understand the sense of I will never have another breath of peace as long as people of that ethnicity are breathing air on the earth, right? And I can't, you can't just be like, oh, you evil, awful, horrible, whatever labels, because you understand the generational trauma and then immediate trauma that comes to that. And also you understand how the devil is so good at his job in using that trauma to, you know, just like the cycle of violence just repeats and escalates. And we see that happening. And what does it mean to be a follower of the Prince of Peace? And to what does it mean to make peace in a way that isn't like both sides-ism. And I think there just are moments when we say like, hey, there's an, in, you know, there are times I think of moral clarity, say everyone's favorite example, the civil rights movement, easily enough to be said from the perspective of 60 years later, but looking back, you're like, oh, moral clarity, the right side to be was on the streets with the people who were protesting. And and there are those moments, although they're never as clear in the living them out. And then I think there are those moments when you're just like, oh, the the wounds are so deep. And 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 the powers and principalities have turned wounded people against one another and and made them believe that peace isn't possible and that their only hope of salvation comes through destruction. And what I want to grieve is just that lie and stand against that lie and also stand against it as a person who knows, you know, I was talking to someone, corresponding with someone who's, you know, a descendant of genocide, genocide survivors. And I'm like, I am not the descendant of a survivor. I, I am descendants of bystanders or perpetrators. And so what does that mean to have sort of that in your epigenetics and watching all of this play out. So I guess I'm just thinking about, you know, how are we going to do this? Not as like, hey, it's time for the holiday. And I'm all like, I'm all for the light. I'm all for the joy. I am all for the peppermint chocolate. Like I'm not against any of that, but I just, you know, to say like, no, we really have spiritual work to do in this season that the world is crying out for. And what does it look like to take that with the utmost seriousness and I'm not sure, but I just am wrestling with it. Yes, of the three Abrahamic religions in the Middle East, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, the thing, and I, I think we were saying this on the run, the thing, the unique thing that Christianity has to offer is this, this theology of loving your enemy. Mm-hmm. Like that is that's a powerful thought because what, what has to happen in war to commit certain atrocities, you have to, in your own mind, dehumanize right. the other, right? You, you have to see them 
as less than human. And that allows you to be able to do horrible things. Right, because they're a threat. They're not a human, they're a threat. They are a threat. I remember being a freshman at Bethel College, now Bethel University, Mackenzie, Tennessee. The Reverend Dr. William Ramsey, the philosophy and religion professor, spoke to our freshman class of religion students and he started talking about when he was our age. He was 18 on a boat in the Pacific. Now this man had grown up in the Presbyterian Church, confirmed in the Presbyterian Church, knew he would be a preacher in the Presbyterian Church and he said, I remember being 18 on this boat in the Pacific. First of all, I was crying for my mother. But the second thing, I had this internal deep conflict. I was going to fight. This was after Pearl Harbor. was going to fight the Japanese. And yet my Sunday school training would not leave me alone. Right. Thou shalt not kill. Right. Like he said, I, I was there wrestling. Like these are people. And what has to happen in the Middle East is that kind of wrestling with the humanity of the other. And I think like also just the sense of, look, nobody gets to pick you don't get to pick if you're born Jewish or Palestinian or American or white or black or whatever. And so we all come into the world with these like legacies that, you know, you come into the world being born into a country, being born into a set of circumstances. And, you know, your professor didn't, if he had been born in Germany, he, he could have been a Presbyterian who was on a different ship you know, I mean, just the sense of like, and, and I think what's so hard for us is because the church has been so thoroughly and seamlessly integrated into the empire that we live in, whether it's America or Germany or Israel or Palestine, whatever it is, that there, we, we teach our children, thou shall not kill in kindergarten, but we also say, well, but let's support our troops and, you know, honor those who've served. And we, and we frame it like that, but we don't, we don't talk about the fact that the folks who are serving, are, they're serving us by risking their lives, absolutely, but also by killing for us. And, and we don't have that conversation as a culture because it gets framed as if you say that you're you're dishonoring people who have laid down their lives and that's an honorable thing to do and you should be grateful to them. And I mean, I am, but I also think, you know, I mean, I just watch it with my own children. Like one of my daughters was like, I want to, maybe I want to be in the army. And I'm like, what? Like, help me understand why. And she's like, well, I mean, talking about like the physical challenge and like the serving and seeing the world and, you know, being the best of the best. I'm like, okay, I can see how you've watched a lot of really effective commercials, but like, do you understand that if you sign on to be in the army, you're being trained to kill people? And she was like, stop. I mean, you know, like she was really offended that I said that. I'm like, no, you need to understand I won't even say that all those other things are not true. I'm just saying you can't join the, I mean, you, you have to, you have to understand that we don't say that out loud. We, we name all the other stuff instead of like wrestling with a really difficult thing of saying like we, because so many folks who are serving are coming back with moral injuries because we send them across the world and tell them like, whatever, you know, go into Fallujah and do what you need to do. And we make, we ask them to do terrible things. And then we don't even tell the truth about what they 
are and we isolate, you know, the reality is as Christians, we should be a people who are saying there is, we are called to a different way. And prior to Constantine, you know, Christians, I mean, this was a big reason that they continued to get fed to lions. I mean, not literally, but, you know, martyred because they would be conscripted into service and they would say, I cannot serve. I cannot take up arms against someone else. And now, you know, it is, and again, I, I know that there are people of deep and sincere Christian faith who are serving in arms. I know many of them. I respect them. But I mean, I just think it's so interesting that now it's like a betrayal of the faith to even name that shouldn't we have a problem with killing people if we're followers of Jesus. And it's like so difficult for us to talk about that we won't, we don't even, we don't even name it. And I, um, but yeah, I mean, in a moment like this to say, if I, if I understand anything about following Jesus of Nazareth, what I understand is we cannot destroy evil with human weapons. That's what we believe. Yeah, and to bring this even closer to home, I think one of the one of the downsides of social media and media in general is that we can begin to have thoughts like whatever your your political perspective is, whatever your theological perspective is, there, there is, there is a, a, a media stream, a media flow, a media community that you can enter into that will inspire you to start thinking, well, if we could just get rid of those people, right. then the world, the country, my life would be a lot better. And that's very easy to do these days because once you, once you have identified your group, and that your group is good, and those other people, they have different thoughts, different ways. Well, they've got to be the enemy. And the reason things are bad for you and your group is because of those people. Well, then the logical conclusion is if we could just get rid of those people, then everything would be better. Yeah, I mean, I think the reality is, and we see this in churches too, if there's just this idea that like salvation through subtraction, right? Like if, if there's... If we, you know, this, this ministry would be perfect if we could just get that person out. This community would be perfect if we could just get rid of that person. Like this person is holding us back. And the reality is there's always somebody, and, and depending on who you are, it's a different somebody, but there's always somebody who you perceive of as the least helpful, the least useful, the least gifted. But if you remove that person, someone else just takes their place, right? Like eventually there, you know, Salvation through subtraction just ends in complete alienation because, you know, and the model of the gospel is Jesus saying, you know, salvation through, through addition, like Jesus incarnation coming down to dwell among us. And that's, that's just a radically different model. And it's, and it is to say, it is a self-giving vulnerable model, not a protective model. And it's just wildly countercultural. So anyway, this is me not saying much on this podcast. (laughs) What are you thinking about? Well, this Sunday is the Sunday before Thanksgiving. And so I will be preaching um, a Thanksgiving message. And I I do that most years. Um, And this, I do. Yeah. Um, It's important to me uh, because I understand Thanksgiving as something bigger than uh, the American holiday that's celebrated, that Thanksgiving really at its root is a, uh, a spiritual discipline. Uh, it's not uh, some uh, warm, fuzzy feeling, even though we may feel gratitude from time to time, that uh, being thankful, being grateful is uh, a spiritual discipline that we enter into intentionally, whether we feel it or not. And so this Sunday, I am returning to uh, one of my favorite psalms, uh, Psalm 150, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. And I'm thinking about um, a God-centered versus a stuff-centered thanksgiving. I mean, often 
when we think about giving thanks, we begin with our stuff. I have this, I have that, mm -hmm. I have this. And then the next logical step is, and it's more than those people over there. And so we feel a kind of gratitude, which in reality is a form of superiority. My life is better because I have more than. I may not have as much as you know, Jeff Bezos, but at least I have more than, right? And, and, and there is a sense to which we ought to take stock of things, right? Um, God has given us food to eat, water to drink, places to live. I mean, we, we should be grateful for that. And so I uh, want to acknowledge that. But also, the thing I love about Psalm 100 um, is that it... The thanksgiving is focused, it's a, it's, a, it's a thanksgiving to God, giving thanks to God for God. Yeah. And the psalm ends by listing three attributes of God. So if you, if you want to give thanks to God for God, be grateful for these three characteristics of who God is. And that is God's goodness, God's steadfast love, and God's faithfulness. And uh, so we are just going to land there and soak in that on Sunday. Um, I don't know exactly what I'm saying, but clearly I have a, a, a bit of an outline. But we're going to give thanks to God for God. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's the kind of message that you, you can miss it kind of in the early days of your walk with the Lord. Like, I, I'm, well, I'll just speak for myself that, you know, there's just times when you are full of your own, and I still am full of my own stuff, but just your own passion, your own anxiety, your own desire that just sort of like God is good. God is steadfast, loving God is faithful. Yeah. 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 I believe that. But what about, but what will about? I get, but yes. I, you know, and, and so I think, you know, particularly being in a, uh, in a culture that, you know, has sort of figured out ways to monetize and marketize the, the Christian faith. And, you know, a lot of times it's, you know, God is good. So you should get God is good. So if you, then you'll, and, and being able to say like, no, our, our fullness, like when we are thankful because of who God is, then what we are thankful for is never under threat, right? Like then God is not changing God is not running out God like when that's the ground of our gratitude then we have a gratitude that will sustain us through you know th through the the loss that is coming to all of us like the you know the loss of you know mobility the loss of mental sharpness the the loss of our people I mean I just yes. I mean the reality is like I think a lot about you know Obviously, there are so many people caught up in this conflict in the Middle East who are people of faith, who are walking out this horror with with God and and being able to say, like, what kind of gratitude do I have for God that would sustain me if I were in that hospital? You know, if it if it wouldn't then I need to dig deeper, right? I mean, because the reality is I think, you know, I think about the people who are choosing to stay, choosing to stay, knowing that they're most likely not going to make it out, knowing that the people they're going to help, they're not probably going to save, knowing that in choosing to stay, many people will look at them and say, well, the only people who are staying are members of the Hamas terrorist organization. So you must be too, right? I mean, so just being willing to commit to doing what you believe is loving, knowing that it probably will not alter the outcome, knowing that many people will not only not celebrate you for it, but actively despise you for doing it and choosing to stay in love anyway, because at the end of the day, we have a certain way of being in the world, not because we think, okay, God is like a magic trick. And if we work this, then we'll get a certain desired outcome. But just saying like, these are the values of the kingdom of God. And I believe in them, period. 
And I am seeking the grace to be faithful without knowing what the outcome would be, without needing to be understood, without needing to be effective, to just say like my satisfaction is in faithfulness to God. Um, Like that's just the kind of deep, I mean, I think, you know, Richard Rohr has some quote about like, you know, just a lot of American Christianity has just been frivolous foolishness and the world is too, the world doesn't, like, we need to be deep and mature and serious about who Jesus has revealed himself to be because the time is now. Like, um, so anyway. Well, the word that comes to my mind is the word contentment. Mm-hmm. And if I'm content, that means I am no longer striving and reaching and struggling for more. Mm-hmm. And that I can trust God, whether I'm up on the mountain or down in the valley, to be faithful, to be good, to be steadfast in love towards mm-hmm. me. And even when my circumstances are not okay, it's okay. Right. Well, and the only way that can be true is if my contentment is in who God is mm-hmm. and in the promise and anticipation of resurrection so that this right now really is can be hell can be evil can be unwinnable but my hope and my contentment is in being sustained by the god who has overcome the world so well you gotta pick up your kid i do um so thank you all so much for listening if you would like to find out more about what god is doing at god's church Dorita Presbyterian. You can go to their website, which is www.doritachurch.com. You can check out their podcast on the Podbean website or their YouTube channel. Look for the Dorita logo, which is the um, stained glass window of a dove coming down. And you can worship with them at 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you want to find out more about what God is doing at The Grove, you can go to the website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. You can check out our podcast, um, The Grove Podcast. Look for the tree with headphones on. You can look at it, get it at iTunes or, you know, wherever, wherever, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, you can look at our YouTube channel, join the live stream on Facebook, or you can worship with us at 10 a.m. on Sundays. So thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week.